Wild, a baseball podcast from Fancrafts, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fancrafts. Hello, Meg. Hello. There was a time briefly earlier this month where it seemed like the Padres might have a spending constraint, <laughs> that, that they might have drawn the line somewhere, <laughs> and it turns out that that is not the case. No. <laughs> At least if they have drawn the line, it's invisible and we can't detect where it is. But we never talked about Manny Machado when it looked like, for an instant there, he might not sign an extension with the Padres because supposedly there was a deadline that he had set of February 16th and if they didn't get a deal done by then then they weren't going to get a deal done and he said that he was going to opt out after the season so it looked for a little while there like he actually was going to be gone or at least was going to opt out but we didn't banter about it I didn't bring it up because I I just had a sense you know that this might be still a developing story Mm. (laughs) I don't want to count the Padres out here when it comes to spending on someone And that proved prudent because the Padres did indeed extend Manny Machado and for a long, long time. Yeah, I think that we had made brief reference to the idea that like he might want to contemplate it given just how rich the market had been Mm -hmm. over the winter. But yeah, you know, the thing is, uh, the Padres were like, what if you didn't though? What if instead you remained uh, a Padre? Yeah. Which again, this is why when you have when you have human human team names, it's weird, <laughs> right? Because uh, you know that's like a that's like a thing you are. Like you, mm-hmm. you're a Padre. I'm a Padre. Yeah. <laughs> you don't refer to yourself that way though. That doesn't feel like a Ben way of saying that. But no. Yeah. I just I just really appreciate their commitment to putting a good baseball team on the field and saying, you know, some of these deals, the back ends, they'll be bad. But we survived Eric Hosmer, so really how bad could it be? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, they won't even get to experience the back end of the Eric Hosmer deal no. firsthand. I yeah. guess he will play out the string somewhere else. Yeah. But yeah, this one this one is pretty wild. This yeah. one so let me see if I can summarize the situation here. So Machado, the initial deal with San Diego was 10 years and 300 million. That yes. was going into 2019. And that gave him an opt out after five years, which would have been after the 2023 season. I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. And this extension is for 11 years and 350 million, but it begins this year and then it runs through. 2033, Mm -hmm. which will be his age 40 season. This does not have any Mm opt-outs, so we will not go through this again at some point. There is a full no-trade clause. So since he had six years and 180 remaining on his previous deal, then this is basically like tacking on five years and 170 in new money to the existing deal that he already had that he had said he was going to opt out of. So basically he had some leverage here and he exercised it and he said, yeah, I'm gone. And that 
sort of twisted the Padres' arms, I suppose, although not really necessarily because, again, they could have just revisited this later in the season or they could have decided whether they wanted to bid on him as a free agent. Like, that's the thing, I guess, is that I don't know that the Padres got any kind of discount here. It Mm-mm. seems like just they the sure opposite, right? Yeah, they didn't Cause, seem like they did. <laughs> no, because that's typically the way it works with an extension that you sign someone to before they reach free agency because the team is taking on some amount of risk, right? I mean, right. Manny Machado is not a very risky player by the standards of Major League Baseball players. He's very good and he tends to be fairly durable, but they don't know what will happen this season. He could get hurt. He could have a down year. Who knows? And so if you commit to someone before you see what they do in that year, then typically you expect some sort of discount built in there. And I don't think they got that. (laughs) I think that they probably, I mean, who knows what the market will be like next offseason, given what it was like this offseason. But it's not out of the question to think that they could have signed him to this contract next year, right? So even when he was a free agent and anyone could have bid on him, because at that point he would have been, what, 31? Because uh, he's now 30 and some days 236 days he will turn 31 in july so that's uh up there in the age range where teams tend to be wary about giving someone a a double digit years length contract but not the padres no damn the torpedoes Uh, they're just gonna acquire all the players and they're gonna keep all the players after they've acquired them (laughs) yeah yeah i it's interesting because like you can look at his what would have been his free agency as the strange push and pull because you're right that like there's no guarantee he'd come off a year like he just had and he will be older because that's how time works but also like next off-season's free agent class is kind of meh, yeah, you know? Yeah, especially like, for position players. Yeah, right. it's, it's down to Otani, who's a, right. a part-time position player right. as it is, a, a DH. It's really, really thin now after some of these long-term deals that have been signed. I mean, that class, it's like, who is still a free agent next off-season who's right. a position player? It's like right. Teoscar Hernandez or something. Yeah. It's really, really a weak crop right now. Yeah, it's, it's pretty limited. And so, like, when you think about what those things might have done to shape his market, it's like, you know, if he had had a good year, who knows? Like, who knows what he could have gotten, assuming that teams are willing to keep spending. Mm-hmm. But now we don't have to wonder. I do appreciate, do you think that the Padres ownership group was just like, I, you know, committee away. You know, you committee however you want to, but like, I'm not yeah. interested in that business. You know, yeah. that's not how we understand ourselves. I don't want to frame what San Diego is doing. I've seen a bit of this that like, you know, the Steve Cohen of the world. I was about to say the Steve Cohens, but really there's just the one that Cohen is like, who maybe inspired the particular set of grousing that led to that committee. But, you know, in terms of, I don't want to say threats to other small market teams because I like what he's doing, but like, uh, you know, ownership groups that are willing to to lay bare that like the emperor has no clothes when it comes to market size, right? Mm-hmm. It's the Padres. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not as if Cohen doesn't influence the market. 
you know, or influence the way salaries are going. And he was clearly perceived to be the greatest threat to like owners being able to cheap out on the regular when they were going into the CBA. But mm-hmm. I think that the more impactful approach an ownership group is taking is coming out of San Diego, not not New York. Yeah. Oh, yeah. New York is supposed to spend. That's mm-hmm. the thing. Like that media market is supposed to buttress a big payroll, maybe not historically a payroll like the one we're seeing in Queens right now, but you know, I, I really like it. They're just like, no, we, we, this is our town. We're doing, we're doing yeah. stuff. It's great here. We're gonna have some great baseball. We're gonna spend some money. Some of these deals are gonna be stinkers. It's not mm-hmm. gonna preclude us from signing more players who, you know, we think are gonna be good for at least the the window that we have, and we'll deal with later later. So yeah, <laughs> it's really there's such outliers in their range of of media market or however you want to define that that either they are just off base and have no idea what they're doing or everyone else is. I mean, there's almost no middle ground. That's what makes them so fascinating. I, I know not every market is the same and created equal. And of course, they have less high-level sports team competition in San Diego. But boy, like if they can do this, then either they can't actually do this and it will all somehow completely crash and burn, which is the implication of a lot of anonymous executives and owners out there who are questioning, is this sustainable? Even Rob Manfred, I think, used that language. And it's either that or it's, uh, no, you should all be ashamed because uh, they actually can do this and you could at least do a lot more, if not quite this much. So this one really, like Danny Zips, Dan Simborski, mm-hmm. when he ran the Zips machine and the Zips machine went brr and it spit out the projection, it was nowhere near what right. the Padres just gave Machado here. It was something like $181 million over 11 years. And yet this enables them to ensure that they can keep the core together for now. There's still some question about Juan Soto. Like, I guess that's the next challenge. Can the Padres sign a young Boris superstar to an extension too? uh, Because that's the ultimate challenge. But other than Soto, they've got so many players locked up now that I think if you look at the roster resource payroll breakdown, For 2026, only the Yankees have more committed for that year. I mean, even the Braves with their multitude of extensions don't have as much money committed in that year because they're not all as high dollar as the Padres are. So it's like the Padres, if if at any point you have been a superstar shortstop, regardless of whether you still play that position, they will sign you for a decade or more. Yeah. (laughs) It's really something. It's really something, you know, Mm -hmm. and there are going to be stretches of it where I imagine, you know, we're going to see some some potentially like bad baseball in San Diego on the back ends of these, but mm-hmm. who cares? Like, I think that they have a really good understanding, not only of like what it is going to take to win, but also where they're situated. And I think that there's something to be said for teams in the NL West and the NL East and the AL East for that matter looking around and saying, even in an era where you're playing fewer games in division you might just have to spend at a premium to like really knock around in those divisions. You just mm-hmm. might have to. And you know what? I, I like that they're saying, yeah. Right. So I don't do know that. 
what it'll look like in six or seven years. And I guess whether anyone cares at that point depends on what happens in the intervening years, right? So this is their year when it looks like the Dodgers are relatively vulnerable. But of course, even if you win the division, that is hardly a guarantee that you're going to get your first championship. But if this guarantees that they can keep most of this core together for the next several years and get several cracks at it before things go south, then yeah, maybe that's worthwhile. Like I guess the alternative, the only better alternative possibly is to be the Dodgers basically where you're just a perpetual motion machine and you're constantly contending for more than a decade and there's no end in sight. And this year when they're seemingly trying to reset their luxury tax penalty, They're a little weaker, but still probably a playoff team. So if this is the the ebb, this is low tide for the Dodgers in the past many years, then that's not so bad. But that requires not only being able to spend a lot, but also to be really good at player development and be successful there too. So it's hard to do that. And the Padres haven't done as good work when it comes to development. Uh, They've certainly generated a lot of prospects that they were then able to use to acquire other players and the farm system is way down now because they have used a lot of those players for that purpose but gosh they're about the most fun team in baseball right now and for the short-term future and this is not something that the Padres have done before so it's just it's super fun and I'd be super excited if I were a Padres fan and I probably wouldn't be worrying all that much about Peter Seidler's money or or what his accounts are going to look like several years down the road unless like there's just a complete disaster like they signed this deal I think even you know after all the Bally's news, right? And and the Padres are one of the teams affected by this RSN stuff. So it doesn't seem like they're phased by that. (laughs) They're not phased by anything. So there's just, just, wow, just, you, you gotta tip your cap, I guess, to just going for it. This is just the, the absolute epitome of going for it. Yeah. And I, I like that they, they could have looked at, they could have looked at this year, like you said, and been like, the Dodgers are having a, a down year. We're going to go for it. They don't have to extend Machado to do that, right? There's nothing. No. He was just on the roster, you know? Yeah. They were just like, <laughs> we are already uh, the employers of one Manny Machado. So they didn't have to do that. What I really appreciate about their approach, and there, I think you're right that there are, there are nits that we can pick, some of which are pretty sizable with other aspects of the organization. The player dev isn't you know, on par with certainly with the Dodgers within their own division or with or with other teams around baseball, particularly on the pitching side, they seem to struggle there. Um, I think their scouting apparatus is really strong, but whether they're able to help guys sort of take the next step is, you know, their their track record is sort of spotty, but they could have been content with like, you know, taking it as far as they can go this year capitalizing on the fact that LA is weak on a relative basis, but they're not content with that. You know, they're not, Mm -hmm. they seem Mm -hmm. to be in perpetual search of like being good for a while. And that's good. We need, we need more clubs doing that. And I think that, you know, ideally you want to develop an organization that can compete in a lot of different ways, if only because they end up being mutually reinforcing and they give you outs when stuff doesn't work, right? Like we talked a lot about how because Tampa is so budget constrained, 
they have to be really great at scouting and they have to be really good at player dev and their, you know, the way that their front office interacts with the rest of the organization has to be super strong because if any of those aspects fail, they're at such a disadvantage when it comes to payroll that they're not going to be able to compete. And I think that ideally San Diego, like, you know, probably wants to take a step forward when it comes to player dev, and they probably do want to continue to modernize from an analytics perspective. But knowing that that does take time, it's nice for them to say, well, in the meantime, you know what else we can do? We can spend some money. So it's good. I like it. Mm -hmm. So the free agent market next year, there's still plenty of pitching available in theory, but Best available non-pitchers or part pitchers, Shohei Otani, Teoscar Hernandez, Ian Happ, Matt Chapman. Yeah. And maybe the best player, most appealing player in the KBO could be available, outfielder Jung-Ho Lee. But goodness, yeah, (laughs) that's just, that's a thin crop, which I guess goes to show that there was a good time to spend and it was this winter and a lot of teams did that. (laughs) Yeah, Mariners, that would have been. Just to pick one team at random. Mm-hmm. And and even on the pitching side, like there are obviously Otani continues to headline there. There's greater depth. Although I think some of that depth is gonna come off the board. Like I just really struggle to believe that Aaron Noll is not gonna be a Philly for the long haul, you know? Mm-hmm. And if Clayton Carshaw ever pitches in another uniform, yeah. <laughs> I won't I don't know what to I won't right. know what to yeah, you know. But- And a lot of the other pitchers, like uh, Max Scherzer, well, he'll be quite old, perhaps still good, who knows, but uh, Luis Severino, Jack Flaherty, who we'll talk about later in this episode, uh, don't know exactly if those guys will be healthy and effective. So yeah, Yeah. it it might just be a weaker class on the whole, but especially on the position player side. And then I guess uh, the other major implication of this extension is that I think Machado now has, uh, I mean, barring some sort of absolute disaster, I don't foresee any way, (laughs) I don't want to jinx it here, but I don't see how he could not obliterate the late Nate Colbert's record for most home runs by a San Diego Padre because he's now just signed in perpetuity and he's not that far away from Nate Colbert's improbable franchise record, which uh, we did a stat blast about not long ago. And uh, 163 homers by Nate Colbert for the Padres, still the franchise record. And Machado is uh, already up to 108. So now that we know he will be a Padre in 2024, I think that is probably when this record will fall, or yeah. certainly at, at some point during that contract. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess uh, Xander Bogarts is there for an eternity, too. So if something happened to Machado, <laughs> then then he could break that record <sighs> anyway. Nothing if not entertaining, these yeah. Padres. Yeah, yeah it's, it's there's definitely... Look... There is a little goofiness to this, you know. Mm-hmm. We should acknowledge the 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 smidge the mm, yep. of of goofiness, but also eh. <laughs> yeah. So one segue we could do here into the second thing that we should probably banter about. I think Manny Machado committed the first pitch clock violation yeah. of spring training. 
So early pitch clock impressions, it seems like all anyone wants to talk about is the pitch clock, which at least thus far has overshadowed all of the other rules changes. I guess uh, we're not quite so obsessed about the bigger bases now, (laughs) and maybe it's uh, too soon to assess the effects of anything else, but the pitch clock is very visible. So people have been buzzing about the pitch clock. So we were both pro pitch clock coming into this. What have you seen so far? I'm still pro pitch clock. I think it's great. I think the pitch clock is great. Having watched some spring training action in person, this is great, you know? Mm -hmm. The thing about it is that, like, there are still things that can can push out a game time, right? That can make things go a little longer. But now those things are like, you know, the 18 runs that I saw scored on Saturday when I went and watched the D-backs play the A's. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of those runs were scored by Oakland, which is very confusing. But, you know, it's not like you can't end up with long-ish games. I think our game that day pushed over three hours. But it's just, you know, it's zippy. Mm -hmm. It moves. It's great. I know that you said Manny Machado had the first position player issue. I know that James Karinchak had a problem after mm-hmm. doing this and that and then calling for a ball and getting assessed yep. a violation. And that's just funny, Ben. Like, we can just <laughs> acknowledge the ones that are funny. I mean, I think that we will continue to see guys adjusting, but have confidence that it's going to be fine, you know? Mm-hmm. And it makes sense for us to talk about it. I know that. People, I, I don't know, people seem a little uh, like there's a bit of consternation with the amount of discourse. And you know how I, I have a low tolerance for discourse. It can sometimes, it, it grates. I find it taxing. Yes. But I, I think it's good for us to talk about it a lot in the early going here so that yeah. people can get a really good sense of the contours of the rule and, you know, the, the edge cases and what have you. And I hope that we will spend all this time bringing people's attention to it and then Players will adjust, and then two months from now, we're not going to feel compelled to talk about it, I don't think. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that it'll just very quickly become part of, you know, our understanding of the game. And with the exception of the guys who have to make an alteration to their delivery, you know, like Astros fans. Astros fans with Garcia might be like, oh, wow, and like remember Mm -hmm. longer, right? I'll miss the rock and the baby. Yeah, we'll miss rocking the baby. And so I get I get it. But I also think that it'll be fine and folks will adjust pretty mm-hmm. quickly. And then we will look back and say, why didn't we do that sooner? You know, mm-hmm. why didn't we think about doing that sooner than we did? I think is what we will ultimately come to. Yeah, and I know that there was a balk-off, as some people are calling it, right? There was uh, a case in a Braves-Red Sox game mm. in a, a crucial moment, uh, bottom of the ninth, right? And bases yeah. loaded, and Braves second baseman Cal Conley is up, but it's a full count, and everyone's standing. <laughs> and then there's a pitch clock violation, which I think some people saw as just the sign of the pitch clock apocalypse, right? That the game just ended this way with uh, effectively wild favorite umpire John Libka making the call Mm -hmm. behind the plate. And I think it was the correct call. It was kind of wonky because it was the batter who had the violation and initially no one knew that and everyone sort of assumed that it had gone the other way. And it was a weird one because the violation was that he was not standing in the box facing the pitcher by the time that you have to do that. But it was weird because the catcher 
was still standing, like the catcher wasn't really ready for the pitch, but that's acceptable. The catcher doesn't have to be in catching position by that point, but the batter does. The batter has to be in position and facing the pitcher and sort of ready to hit. Yes. Which, uh, you know, I feel for Cal Conley because, like, if the catcher's not ready to catch, then it seems like you don't have to be ready to hit, right? Right. But this is just, I mean, this is when you work out the kinks, right? This is when we figure these things out. So this is normal. No one cares about the outcome of this game. Yes, I suppose it's semi-disconcerting that there's even the potential for this to happen in a more meaningful game. And I guess there have always been many weird and dumb ways that a baseball game could, in theory, end. And and usually it doesn't happen. And this usually won't happen either. Like, there were many violations when they first put this into effect in the minors. And then over time, everyone got used to it. And there were far fewer violations. So (laughs) this is like, you know, the first day of spring trading or whatever well that's when the odds are highest that something yes. weird is going to happen because that's when everyone's trying to get their sea legs with this thing so that's when you would want the weirdness to happen yeah i think that it's easy in moments like this to forget that like there has always been the potential for a meaningful game to like end on a balk right mm-hmm. like that yeah. potential has always existed that has happened right yep. and so it feels jarring because the the mechanism by which that balk is called is a little bit different now than it was before or potentially is different now than it was before but it's always sort of existed there and I remember like on the day that I went to the rules demonstration Morgan Sword who's for folks who don't remember the executive vice president of baseball ops for MLB like was asked that like basically are you guys comfortable with the reality that like a a world series game could come down to a violation of these rules. And he said, you know, we don't anticipate that that is going to be a huge problem, particularly by the time we get to the postseason. Guys will be really used to these rules, and I think it'll be second nature. But he was like, yeah, you know, that is, that's something you sign up for. I'm paraphrasing here, but like that's something that you, that's a reality you have to accept as a possibility when you make these changes. But on balance, we still think that this is, you know, the right thing to do for the game. So mm-hmm. they know that this could mm-hmm. happen. And I think you're right. Like this is when you get those kinks out. And I think it'll be fine. Is yeah. The thing. I've seen some hand-wringing about it. It almost feels too fast. Well, we've got to acclimate to it. And and some people have suggested that maybe it'll feel too fast in high-stakes moments in the playoffs. And and some people, Scott Boris, et cetera, have argued that maybe we shouldn't have the pitch clock in the playoffs. And I see the argument. We've talked about it. I think it's probably beneficial to continue to have it. But that maybe, you know, you look back at some of the greatest uh, all-time plate appearances in World Series, et cetera, and some of those pitches would have violated the new pitch clock. And in that situation, you don't really mind stretching it out a little bit because the drama is as high as it's ever going to be. And so you almost want to savor that moment. And so people are kind of concerned, oh, this is how fast it's going to go, like at all times, even when I want to sort of slow down and, and appreciate this moment. So I 
kind of see what they're saying. On the other hand, I I just I kind of feel like we'll be used to it by that point, and just the stakes and the situation will supply yes. much of the drama, even without just the extra time to just marinate in it. Like that can be kind of nice too. But if you had had those uh, just amazing uh, home runs and decisive plays and super dramatic outcomes of plays, I think we would still look back at them and think, wow, that was incredible. That was yeah. one of the best moments of baseball history, even if there had been less time prior to the pitch, right? So I, I just, I don't know that we will mind so much when we get to that time when yeah. that moment rolls around. I think it's, I think it's all going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm encouraged so far. And and I don't know how much to make of the game times. You know, people have been tracking yeah. the game times thus far. And look, I, I've done articles like at the end of spring training about what does this suggest about what the conditions will be right. during the regular season? Because there is correlation there. Sure. And if you change something and, and the offensive environment, scoring environment, whatever we decided we were going to call it, changes in spring training, then that can sometimes be a sign of, of things changing in the regular season. And I think generally spring training games, despite all of the many differences, I, I think they tend to be like roughly in the same range time-wise as regular season games. And... Also, some people are comparing it to last spring, so it's you know more or less like to like. So Travis Sachik has been tracking this. I've seen where he's looked at the average time through X number of spring training games. You know, just comparing so far this spring to the same number of spring training games at the start of last spring training, and it seems like the average time a game is down like twenty four minutes or something, which is roughly what it was down in the minors. And uh, yeah, I would you know, pump the brakes a bit or I guess what they're trying not to do now, but (laughs) just, you know, like reserve judgment. I mean, we expect that the times will be down. That's kind of our prior coming into this. So I'm, I'm not shocked that they would be down. I sort of thought that probably the savings in time would not be quite as dramatic as they were in the minors for various reasons. Just, you know, higher stakes and the games are more meaningful and maybe just the pace is more entrenched. Maybe umpires would be less likely to enforce. And also just the pitch clock is a little more lenient in the majors than it was in the minors, at least some parts of the minors, right? It's like a a little bit longer time. So you would think that there'd be a little less savings, but it's encouraging, I guess, right? I I wouldn't take it to the bank that these results so far will hold up all season once the games count, but I think it's a a sign. It's uh, not devoid of value, I think, in in trying to forecast the future. Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, there's going to be a push and a pull, and we're going to see teams like I mean, less on the pitch clock stuff, but like all of these rules are going to get battle tested by teams trying to figure out a way to mm-hmm. mess with them. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like we just know that to be true. So, you know, there might be adjustments that need to get made along the way, but I think the general outline of the thing is is good. And, you know, it's too early to say anything. And we're going to get to a point in spring training games where it's like you really start subbing a bunch of guys. (laughs) And then it's like, these game times are so long. What happened? So, Mm -hmm. you know, the context of the look is always important, but I think it's, yeah, it's, it's a promising start. I wouldn't like put all my eggs in that time basket. What? (laughs) But you know what I mean? 
I don't know. Maybe there are more starters starting because people are about to go off to the WBC. So perhaps uh, the conditions are slightly different. But we will all be monitoring this very closely as time goes on and time ticks away. So just one little housekeeping update from us. Uh, Last time we put out our help wanted sign and we said that we were looking for a podcast editor because the great Dylan Higgins is leaving Fangraphs and moving on from Effectively Wild. And you alluded to maybe possibly putting up a post on the Fangraphs site And I think we've decided not to do that just because we have gotten quite an outpouring or an inpouring of applications as it is. And so this method seems to be working and uh, we're targeting our audience here of uh, people who are familiar with the podcast already, which is a preference, all else being equal. So people can continue to apply if they're hearing this for the time being. We're hoping to find someone by like late next week. So there's not a ton of time here, but if you're hearing this uh, when it's going up or, or not too long after that, you can continue to apply. You can email wanted at fangraphs.com and use the subject line podcast editor 2023. And you can send along a resume if you have one or some brief notes about your qualifications and your interest. But we have uh, gotten quite a few interested parties already, which is uh, nice. So we don't want to open the floodgates too much because we only have so much time to sift through the applications. And it seems like there are a lot of uh, competitive, qualified people as it is. Yeah. I mean, maybe we'll need to adjust that approach. But Mm -hmm. at this point, I I don't anticipate that because, boy, a lot of folks want to edit the pod. (laughs) Yeah, it's nice. All right. So we have a preview pod for you today. Later in the episode, we will be talking to Nick Picoro of the Arizona Republic and AZ Central Sports about the Arizona Diamondbacks. But first, we will be talking to Katie Wu of The Athletic about the St. Louis Cardinals. So I cite the Fangraphs odds, uh, playoff odds predictions here. So the playoff odds have the Cardinals at 88 wins. And a 55% chance to win the division with a roughly 71% chance to make the playoffs currently. And the Diamondbacks are down at 77 wins with a 1.5% chance to topple those Padres and Dodgers and everyone else and and win the NL West or a 10.4% chance to make the playoffs. So we will take a quick break now. We'll be back with Katie on the Cardinals, followed by Nick on the Diamondbacks. So far away, but it's so easy to see you. When I'm away, I want to put my arms around you. All right, it is time to talk about the St. Louis Cardinals. And to do that, we are joined by Katie Wu, who covers the Cardinals for The Athletic. Hello, Katie. 
Hello, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I, I want to start by asking about a move that the Cardinals didn't have to make this winter because we just saw the Padres pony up to extend Manny Machado after he expressed his intention to opt out after the season. And we've discussed in the past how comparable the careers of Manny Machado and Nolan Arnato are, right? Sure. In terms of career war, they're almost the same. And Arnato is a little more than a year older than Machado. So he's basically as old as Machado would have been after the season when he was intending to opt out. And Nolan Arnato had the option to opt out. Maybe that is redundant option to opt out, but he decided not to. He did not opt out. So that changes the complexion of everything that happened with the Cardinals this winter. I mean, if they had had to try to bring him back or replace him somehow, that just would have shifted everything. So I want to ask a couple questions about that. One, do you think that had anything to do with the timing that he didn't get to see how the market played out and some of the big dollar deals that were handed out that Machado got to see? Two, was that a surprise or or relief to the Cardinals? Did they expect that he was going to stay and then i guess three is it a testament to the cardinals that they convinced him to stay that they created an environment where he wanted to be there even though he had the option to opt out so that's uh, a lot of questions to keep track of but take them in any order you want no no worries and you know it makes sense right to have so many questions about this particular instance because when you look at a player like Nolan Arenado I think you're completely right Ben I think the careers the talent the the age everything about Nolan and Manny Machado are pretty comparable but what really sticks out to me and I think made sense internally to the Cardinals and to those close to Arenado and might not make sense to probably anybody else in baseball, is that Nolan really wanted to be a Cardinal. He wanted to stay in St. Louis. And that was the whole reason why he was traded to St. Louis in the first place in 2021 is because he identified the St. Louis Cardinals as an organization he wanted to play the majority of his career for. It was clear what was happening in Colorado and with the Rockies that there probably wouldn't be any consistent World Series aspirations. Nolan made it abundantly clear that that's what he was looking for in his career. Of course, we've gone through over the last, I want to say, five or six years, seen some outstanding contracts. I think the way that that free agency deals have been structured over the last, really over the last decade, has completely transcended the sport. And it makes sense. I mean, if you're a player, you want to get as much money as possible, right? If I'm going, if I'm, you know, your average, your average person over here and I'm looking for a new job, I'm going to make sure that I hopefully get as much money as possible. Mm-hmm. But for Nolan, he, again, really identified St. Louis as the place he wanted to stay. And him opting in was not a surprise to the organization. I don't even think it was a surprise to him. I remember over the 2022 season in the second half, I approached him a couple times about, you know, where he stood on on opting out. And he said, honestly, I haven't really been thinking about it because I'm just thinking about wanting to win. And, you know, this is in the second half of 2022 when the Cardinals were seemingly writing a storybook of magical moments with Albert Pujols coming back. They looked to be a pretty good team. Obviously, we know how that 2022 season ended for them. But it really wasn't on the decision, really wasn't weighing on his mind throughout the season, which to me was a little bit of a giveaway that he wasn't planning on leaving. Of course, there are going to be conversations. Everyone wants to make sure they're on the same page. President of Baseball Operations, John Mozeliak, did fly to Nolan Arenado over the early parts of the offseason in L.A. The two had a really nice dinner where Nolan just wanted to make sure 
the objectives of the club hadn't changed for the future. And once Mo was was honest and said, we were still trying to win, we're still going to be competitive, we are not going to have any fire sales, I think that's all Nolan really needed to hear to solidify the fact that he was going to remain a Cardinal. I don't yeah. think it was a decision about money. I just think he is so happy here, and this is the place that gives him the best opportunity, he feels, to eventually win a World Series, which is his primary career goal. Well, even if he hadn't given any indication that he was playing top out, it must have still been a, a load off the minds of the fans right. and, and the front office to know that you get to keep Nolan Arnato around, especially coming off a, an MVP caliber season, right? It, I mean, the previous year, he was coming off a down year by his standards, but this season, this past season, everything went right. So he was in a position to cash in. And the fact that he still wanted to stay is the fact that he is so comfortable there that he wanted to stay. Is that something specific? to him or is that something that the Cardinals do just in general or or something about the environment there or the way that they treat players because that's you know in addition to just it's nice to treat people well it's also (laughs) just a a huge advantage if you create an environment where good players want to stick around. I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, I, the running, the running saying that I've had over the last two years is that St. Louis is, is a city full of passionate baseball people. Nolan Arenado might be one of the most passionate baseball players alive. It's a great match here. I think the Cardinals do an incredible job of instilling this kind of culture. I know the Cardinal way has become a bit of a cliche, but there is a different kind of feeling or aura. When you walk into the Cardinals clubhouse and you have guys like Adam Wainwright, you have Paul Goldschmidt, who's a close friend of Nolan. Last year, they had Yadier Armelin and Albert Pujols kind of reestablishing the tone of the clubhouse that was one of the most impactful clubhouses in baseball. And I think that Nolan just decided, you know, this is exactly what I'm looking for in a career. He loves the city of St. Louis. I mean, he had his first child in St. Louis. They're raising a family, him and his wife, Laura, there together. I don't think, yes, it may not make sense. Again, it probably doesn't make sense to those people outside of who don't follow Cardinals baseball that closely. You're so used to seeing athletes go out and try to maximize their deal, which is well within their rights. But for Nolan, I don't, I think he was well aware of what the market could be if he opted out and he was well aware of what he could make, but he didn't really see any, any reason to leave St. Louis because again, it's just where he wanted to be. So they didn't have to worry about sorting out third base, but they did have to worry about sorting out catcher. And boy, did they. They signed Wilson Contreras, <laughs> one of their one of their only major league deals signed, but certainly an impactful one uh, this offseason. It's always nice, I guess, when you can take a player from a division rival. Contreras is interesting because obviously the bat is super potent, but there are questions about his defense um, and certainly how it will age. So what are their expectations for him coming into the season? And has there been any talk internally about how they might address that issue? No, I think that those are valid questions and valid points that the front office certainly took into consideration when they signed Contreras. Look, the Cardinals are not one of those big spending teams that will give out those contracts that we just alluded to with the Nolan segment, right? I mean, they signed him Contreras to a five-year, $87.5 million deal. That was actually their largest free agent contract ever handed out to a player who wasn't already playing in the organization. So that says a lot about the Cardinals and their spending habits. Now, for Contreras, for them to be able to give out such a monster contract in their terms, it really came down to them finding their best all-around two-way player. And when you look at guys, a lineup that has Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arnauto, and you hope for a healthy Tyler O'Neill, adding a bat like Wilson Contreras, I think completely lengthens the lineup. 
And, you know, he's, like we've talked about, he's a very established player. The offense is not the question. When you get to the defense, especially with a team that has had such unbelievable stellar defense really over the last 20 years with Yadier Molina behind the plate, and a team that relies on defense consistently to win ball games, you can see a little bit of a question mark there. And that's, I think, why some of the Cardinals, people in the Cardinals organization, had a little bit of, of trepidation when they were first identifying Contreras as a potential target. Now, all meetings that since Contreras has signed have gone according to plan. He's really bought into the culture with the Cardinals. He's really bought into, you know, making sure his pitch framing is there, making sure his arm is there. And it's not like the Cardinals expect him to be Yadier Molina. No one is expecting him to be Yadier Molina, but he welcomed the challenge of succeeding Yadi, who he called, you know, referred to as one of the players who's impacted his career. And I think that those tiny things that, well, not tiny, but those smaller things of Contreras' games that the Cubs had problems with or had trouble maybe correcting with, I think that's an area the Cardinals can really help because they are so defensively strategic, because they are very good at identifying the small things, the analytical things that can help Wilson make those changes. I will say Wilson seems to be an ideal Cardinal so far. Uh, he's been spending a lot of time with Goldschmidt and Arenado. He's been spending a lot of time with that pitching staff. He did not play in the World Baseball Classic, represent his home country of Venezuela, because he wanted to spend time with his new organization. He's checking all the boxes so far and what the organization wanted to see in terms of buy-in. Those defensive problems or concerns... I'm not sure how heavy they weigh overall for the Cardinals based on what else he has brought to the table. It's certainly something they're sure. going to keep an eye on. But I think overall, if you're from the Cardinals' perspective, the pros severely outweigh whatever cons there may be there. Yeah, and I would think that you know it'll be something of a shock to the system, maybe to the pitching staff and, and certainly to the fans to see someone else back there. But yeah. in some ways, I guess it, it might be a bit of a, a pleasant surprise in the sense that, you know, Yadier Molina, I mean, there's always been the sense that maybe some of the value that he offers uh, hasn't been quantified and that there are intangibles there, of course. But, but late career Yadier Molina, you know, you weren't expecting much from him offensively, Correct. right? And, and of course, you are in Contreras's case. And so having a, a thumper back there for the first time in, in quite some time, I imagine that might be a, a positive change. But I do wonder just what it does to, you know, people who've been pitching to Molina for entire careers. I mean, you know, Adam Wainwright, for instance, what is it like to, to throw to someone else after so long with one person and, and setting records as a battery? So I wonder just, you know, what changes you've uh, sensed so far, you know, is the absence of Molina palpable? I mean, just from a leadership perspective or just sort of his presence? You know, that's a great question. And I think Yachty's absence would have been felt more heavily if there weren't already so many outstanding leaders with veteran, so much veteran experience in that clubhouse already. I mean, Adam Wainwright is still here. It's still his clubhouse. He still commands the respect, just like Yachty did when he walked in. Paul Goldschmidt stepped up as a leader. Nolan stepped up as a leader. And then you have Contreras who comes in, and I know he's the new guy in, in, in town, really, but he has that same kind of, you know, this is my pitching staff. I want to make sure every guy feels like they're comfortable with me and confident in me. And that's its own kind of leadership as well. I will say that Contreras does not have an easy task to, to start the season. Not only is he learning a brand new pitching staff, and sure it helps that, you know, the Cubs and the Cardinals played each other so frequently over his past seven seasons with Chicago. 
But he is learning a brand new pitching staff, and he's doing so with a pitch timer. And we were talking to this with a couple of relievers who said it is so important for catchers to know their sequences. Because when you get on the mound with this pitch timer counting down, you can't spend all this time shaking pitches off, and you don't want to get yourself into a position where you're all of a sudden saying yes to something that you don't actually want to throw because the pitch timer is at three, two, one, and you're like, okay, I don't want to get dinged for a violation, so let's just do this. They said since Contreras has come in, the couple of pitchers that I've talked to, there's been no even thought of that. There's been no issue. He is so well prepared. He's been very knowledgeable doing his research. He knows his pitchers. He knows his sequences. He knows their stuff. And that's been really helpful. Certainly has not been an easy task, like I said, but when you are, when you are dealing with a catcher with so much experience who is actively bought into the organization, I think it really helps. And as difficult as that decision might have been to not play in the World Baseball Classic, I think that was a nod in the right direction for his Cardinals teammates to say, okay, hey, this catcher really wants to prioritize his new team over maybe his personal endeavors or something that he would like to do for his own self. So he'll be entrenched at catcher, obviously. It's funny, there are a lot of You know, there's not a lot of mystery on this roster, but there is some in the outfield. I know that there is a bit of a competition between Tyler O'Neill and Dylan Carlson for the center field job. So how do you expect that outfield configuration to shake out? Right. For me, that's the most exciting thing about this Cardinals camp. I mean, the 2023 Cardinals roll are rolling in with ideally almost the exact same core of their division winning 2022 squad. What I think sets the Cardinals apart in terms of their outfields is their three projected outfielders to start the opening day, to be on the opening day roster are Tyler O'Neill, Dylan Carlson, and Lars Nupar. And what is special about this group is all three guys can play all three outfield positions interchangeably and they can all play them well. So the center field competition, I think, is a way to see who can the Cardinals depend on of those three to be the most consistent in center field because for as well as those three can play the outfield, they also have a top prospect named Jordan Walker who projects to debut in 2023 and play the corner as well. So I'm not quite, I do think that Jordan Walker has a chance to make the opening day roster, especially if he hits well. Um, he had a monster home run in his first spring training start off Johnny Cueto on Sunday, went about 430 feet and it just sounded different. But before Walker can get to the big leagues, there has to be a pathway for him. And that's why the center field competition, I think, is so interesting. Tyler O'Neill is going to play center field for Team Canada in the World Baseball Classic. And Lars Newbar will be out playing for Team Japan, which means the Cardinals really have a limited amount of time to see who right. can play center here. It's really Dylan Carlson's spot to win, I think. What about the bats of those guys? Because, of course, uh, O'Neill had the huge breakout season in 2021 and then took a big step back offensively and, and missed some time last year. And then Carlson, sort of uh, same deal. I think people were expecting maybe more out of him and got a little less. And I know you wrote recently that he was uh, dealing with uh, what a, a finger, thumb, hand issue of some sort that, that maybe played a part in that. But what are the expectations for them bouncing back to what they were in 2021 or something along those lines? Yeah, the expectations are they have to hit. I mean, the defense of those three really are, are unquestionable. They've all proved, I mean, Tyler O'Neill has two gold gloves, Dylan Carlson, a very serviceable outfielder. Same with Lars Newbar. Lars, well, Lars took a major step forward offensively last season. O'Neill pretty much struggled all season long. And Dylan played the second half, admittedly hurt, and said that was a lesson that he needed to learn and when to rest his body and take some time off. So, 
Tyler O'Neill, the key to him being successful offensively is just to stay healthy. This is a guy that is a tremendous athlete with some tremendous power and pop in his bat, but he does have a bit of an injury history and that's really hindered him in the past. So he spent the entire offseason in St. Louis reworking his training program, working with the Cardinals training staff to make sure that he was training in a way that made him more durable for the season. Same with Dylan. He's uh when he's right, he can be a, a versatile piece in the Cardinals lineup. He can hit pretty much anywhere. I think he actually did hit one through nine at some point during the season last year. He just has to be a little bit better against right-handed pitching. Um, he's a Switch hitter, the Cardinals have no plans to change that, but he needs to be more consistent against righties so that he can remain a staple in the lineup. Otherwise, they will platoon him like they did in the second half. The hope for Dylan is, talking to him, that he can just be more consistent. He feels like with the hand injury behind him that this is something that he'll be able to implement more, and obviously the reps with both Tyler and Lars gone for the World Baseball Classic will help him in the spring. You mentioned Walker and how he's you know, basically going to have to be an outfielder at this point because you know, there's a guy we all know over at third base. I wanted to ask, and he's a little further uh, away from the majors, I would imagine, but about the the future home of Mason Wynn. I was there to see his incredible throw at the Futures game, but it isn't as if the, the Cardinals are hurting for infielders. So what do you think his eventual home will be when he makes the big leagues? And when do you expect that he might debut? Yeah, Mason Wynn is such an electric talent, former two-way player, now primarily an infielder. I think with Mason, I do think there's a path of him to the St. Louis Cardinals. Because no matter, I don't know how they do this, but the Cardinals are so good at drafting versatile pieces that can move around the infield, play different positions. And I think Mason Wynn is one of those guys. They value versatility. So he's a guy that can play both middle of the infield spots, just like Brandon Donovan, who is currently on the squad. And I do think while he may have a little bit of a blockage with Paul DeYoung and Tommy Edmond, the Cardinals always have a way of needing that depth. They, Ollie Marmel, their manager, really likes to implement lineup fluidity. He likes to implement flexibility in that lineup, and very rarely does he use the same lineup twice in two days. Mason Wynn has a little bit to go. I'm sure, I believe he'll probably start the season in AAA. They like the defense. He's working a little bit more on being a more a fine-tuned offensive player. He said last year, you know, he's a small guy. He is not like his, his good friend Jordan Walker, 6'5", yeah. and, you know, he's a little smaller, profiles as a middle infielder. So he said he tried to get too big with his swing in AA last year. He was trying to be the home run hitter. He was trying to hit for power, and he realized last season while talking to the Cardinals player development staff, that's not the player he is. He is the line drive singles, get on base, use your speed, and be the the steady uh, defender on the infield. So that is what he is trying to do. He's young, just like Jordan. He'll probably, he's still working at it, but I do think there is a path. 2024 is the window for Mason, in my opinion. But it, again, you know, the Cardinals have always needed depth in their infield. So I, I do think that they see him as part of their long-term plan. Yeah, when we ran our uh, interview with Randy Flores last week for Prospect Week, uh, he obviously talked about Walker and Wynn, and I found a, a photo of them from spring training. And yes, the, the difference in stature is noticeable, <laughs> yes. especially when they're next to one another. <laughs> um, so my last question was about two guys who took steps back in 2022. So I want to ask about two guys who took steps forward. Edmund, you just mentioned, and Newt Barr, you mentioned as well, and he really had a breakout. Edmund, just the defense was so, so spectacular, at least by the numbers, that he ended up being an extremely 
extremely valuable player, depending on which war you're looking at. So is there hope that Edmund can continue to be an above average hitter in addition to giving them that kind of glove? And then with Newt Barr, who, as you mentioned, is going to be on the Japan team in the WBC, is there an expectation that he can maintain that power outburst that he had? Sure. I think, well, let's start with Tommy, right? He is the guy that kind of projected to be their utility player. In 2021, he was even playing in right field because the Cardinals had so many injuries at that point. And he seems to thrive anywhere you put him defensively. He was actually so good last year at shortstop that he, for whatever reason, kind of got played out of a gold glove because he wasn't exactly a utility player either. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, obviously, a, certainly a deserving candidate there. I think for Tommy, the, they don't, again, it's a little bit like Mason. They don't need him to be the home run hitter. They need him to be the switch hitting, get on base guy. You got a bunch of power behind you if you're Tommy Edmond. You have O'Neill, you have Nolan, Goldschmidt, Contreras, Newbar, we'll get to. You don't need to hit the home run. You just need to get on base. And I think those are the, that's a fair expectation for Tommy. He can serve as a leadoff hitter. He can serve as a double leadoff hitter in the nine hole. But if Tommy can get on base, steal a bag and put himself in scoring position, they'll certainly take it. Average, I don't think, is a huge stat when it comes to Edmund that they're looking for. Neither is power, but the on-base percentage, absolutely. Now, for Newt Barr, this is a guy who barely made the opening day roster last year, actually spent a significant time in Memphis in AAA, and came back in the second half just a completely new person. Mm -hmm. And the expectations for Lars are heavy in 2023. He was the first player that manager Ollie Marmol expressed as being a regular starter at the winter meetings. He said, Lars Newbar will be playing ideally every single day for us. And the key for Lars staying in that lineup is to making sure he can hit. He has that lefty power bat. The Cardinals were coveting. They were trying to find one over the offseason. It did not work out. John Mozeliak lamented the fact that they were not able to do so. So it was clear that that was an area that they thought they needed to boost. Now they're going to look for that help internally with Lars. He's been working extensively at driveline, has completely revamped, revamped his power, his barrel, exit velocity. Those are all things trending in the right direction. So... Again, the Cardinals are looking, we're looking for a lefty power bat. They'll hope they have one internally now and it'll be Lars' spot to win. And I want to ask about another hitter who revamped himself, and that's Nolan Gorman, who I think maybe had the the most kind of uh, textbook case of the league catching up to someone, right? Sure. (laughs) You know, good prospect and and then comes up and and hits the ground running and then stops hitting anything because uh, it seemed like he had a hole that the league kind of caught up to. And he has done his best to to close it and to counter adjust. So can you explain what he did and how it seems to be working thus far? Yeah, I think that's a perfect explanation for it. The league just caught up to where he was going, getting exposed, which was the high fastball. Look, we looked, we, we know how Nolan Gorman projects. He is that outstanding left-handed power hitter that we talked about a little bit with the Cardinals needing and Lars. Now, the reason that he slumped so poorly in the second half was because Opposing teams were identifying the fact that he was really chase-heavy on the high fastball. Nolan Gorman's bread-and-butter pitch is that low off-speed down in the zone. If you give him some high heat, he's going to chase. And so to Gorman's credit, he went into the offseason working primarily on how to do not necessarily damage with that high fastball, but being able to foul it off or at least put it in play if he can to give him a better shot at the changeup or the off-speed, which he can do damage with. And the early returns have been very favorable. Ollie Marmel says that he came into camp as a looking like a brand new hitter. Talked to Nolan Gorman after Sunday's game. He fouled off. He was in a two-strike count. 
and fouled off a couple high fastballs and eventually got one for a two-run single. And when I asked if he felt like it was a step in the right direction, he said, no, I expect to do that now. I've put in way too much work to not have that expectation. So for me, I thought that was a really encouraging sign for Gorman, who acknowledged, you know, I'm not always going to want that pitch. I still want them to pitch me low. But if they know that I can foul it off, if they know that I can do damage with it at times, then they're going to stop giving it to me so often. And it's going to increase my chance of getting the off-speed pitch in the zone that I want. So that's what Gorman is coming into. He's trying to win a spot on this active roster for opening day. And if he can do some damage or at least put himself in a more favorable position to get to that changeup or the off-speed stuff, then I think the Cardinals will have a really exciting bench. And, you know, he can still play second for them too. I want to talk a bit about the rotation now, and maybe we can start with a guy who actually hasn't been with the club all that long in Jordan Montgomery. When he came over from New York, he had that like scintillating August and looked so good. And then he kind of trailed off after that. He wasn't bad, but he was he was more sort of what he had been with New York. And I'm curious what the club's expectations are for him going into 2023 and how he might work to look more like his August than like his September and October. I think the Cardinals are expecting Montgomery to be a middle of the rotation arm. They'll certainly take it, of course, if he projects to be higher than that. But for Jordan, it's the Cardinals are in a, a weird spot with their rotation because after this season, they only have one pitcher on that rotation that is signed. It's only Steven Matz. Everyone else is either retiring, if you're Adam Wainwright, or set to be a free agent. Jordan certainly is obviously under that criteria as well. I think what the Cardinals are looking for in Jordan Montgomery is if he can be that durable, utilizing the glove side fastball that brought him a lot of success last year, get balls on the ground, get quick outs, don't walk guys. That's the reason why they traded for him at the deadline. They saw a guy that really fit their ballpark and what they look for with their pitchers. The Cardinals like the ground ball guys. They like guys that keep them off, that keep the opposing team off the bases. When you have an, I mean, look, when you look at the Cardinals uh, infield and their Cardinals defense in general, it certainly makes sense why they don't mind balls being put in play because it's probably going to be an out when you got Nolan Arnato at third base and you got Paul Goldschmidt at first. But for Jordan, the key to him having success is to just continue keeping guys off the base bases, not walking guys, and uh, making sure that he can get to guys early and last deep in games. Cardinals have a pretty simple formula when it comes to starting pitching, what they like to see. They like to see quick outs, attacking guys early. They don't necessarily, it's not that they don't care about the strikeout or the swing and miss rate, but if you can get a guy to ground out on the first or second pitch, say to do a lot of pitches and you can go longer in the games, they'll certainly take that. Yeah, the rotation seems like the one area where arguably they could have done more, I suppose. As we noted, it wasn't the most active offseason aside from Contreras, but there weren't that many holes, at least in the lineup. Like if you look at the Fangraphs depth charts projections, they seem pretty solid across the board, except for starting pitcher. The rotation seems to be kind of uh, in the bottom tier. And I guess there are ways that it, it could work out better than that, but there's just uncertainty about some members of their rotation and Jack Flaherty would probably be the the first who would come to mind. So what are the odds that he can get back to being what he was? How's his health and uh and what has befallen him? Yeah, that's a great question. I with with Jack Flaherty, you're looking at a guy who was in 2019 perhaps one of the most untouchable pitchers in the league. And I don't think that's fair to really judge anyone who struggled in 2020 just based on the the, the circumstances of that year. But when he came into 2021, before his oblique injury, he was looking like an all-star pitcher. He was an ace of a staff, an ace of the staff. He had the swing and miss. He had the nasty stuff. He was everything the Cardinals were expecting him to be. Obviously, the last 18 months have not gone according to plan for either party. 
But Jack came into 2023 with a clean bill of health, no limitations. He is under no kind of restriction, full go. It's his rotation to claim if he can pitch for it. And the expectations is that he can. Um, and both talking to Jack, John Mozeliak, and Ollie Marmel, they've all said this is a different kind of confident Jack. They're expecting big things from him. They, I, I know Jack, of all people, is going to be pretty excited to shed that injury history and prove, you know, this is his walk year as well, that he can still be a top arm in the league. And if he can, I think that completely changes the trajectory of this Cardinals rotation. I don't think you're wrong at all, Ben, in, in saying that this is probably the biggest question mark of this team. And as we've seen over the past couple of seasons, you have to have good starting pitching if you want a chance to win in the playoffs. You have to have a heavy hitting one, two, three. And the Cardinals certainly have a much better rotation all around if Jack Flaherty can be their ace. And there are a couple guys who can help to supplement that rotation in the event of injury or underperformance. You know, obviously we've seen some of Matthew Libertor at the big league level, but among their arms at AAA, who do you imagine we might see if the worst happens? <laughs> the worst. Well, the Cardinals are in a, a much better spot over the last two years because they actually have depth in that AAA. In 2021 and up until 2022 when they traded for Montgomery and Jose Quintana, they didn't really have that depth. I think you'll get a good chance to see a Liberator. Uh, you know, he's, he's still a young guy with plenty to learn, and he had an okay first in, in the big leagues, but the expectations are certainly that he can be stretched out and, and pitched accordingly in AAA. Another name that I think is a little under the radar is actually Monday starting pitcher for the Cardinals' Grapefruit League game. And Connor Thomas, he's a lefty guy that didn't really have a spectacular year in AAA last year, but went in and played for the air and played in the Arizona Fall League and had debuted a new pitch. He debuted a cutter and that cutter has completely transcended his game. So Cardinals again, probably their starting rotation solidified with Wainwright, Flaherty, Michaelis, Matz, Montgomery, but guys like Libertor, guys like Connor Thomas that they can really stretch out. I think those are guys that are worth keeping an eye on just in case because, you know, it's nearly impossible for all five starters to make all 30 or so starts throughout a season. So I'd be excited to see what those two guys in Libertor and Thomas can bring. Wanted to ask about Ali Marmel's first season, which obviously was a success. Uh, C.B. Buckner dispute aside, <laughs> they won the division. That's what they wanted to do. But he was the youngest manager in the majors. And obviously, he's not new to the organization. But I just wonder what it was like for him to be that young on that team with so many veterans and established leaders who were way older than he was. So what kind of manager was he? And do you think he will be a different manager as he gets older and, you know, Pujols and, and Yachty are gone and, and say Wainwright's gone after this year? I mean, did he defer to those veteran leaders in a way? Like, and, and was that the thing to do, I guess, in that clubhouse? It would seem to make sense, probably. I don't think he necessarily deferred to those players, but I think he in general has a very hands-off managing style. You know, he said before, if you need me to go in that clubhouse and motivate you to be better, you don't belong here. You should be motivated by yourself. And I think that was a message that really resonated with the clubhouse. You know, again, we've talked about the leadership here. They don't really need a lot of people harping on them to go out there and get motivated and play. But what I liked about Ollie and what I think really earned him the respect early from people in the organization, again, he has been there a very long time. It's not like he was inheriting a brand new club, but he just stressed having an open and honest relationship and he backed it up. So he would go out and he would tell players who underperformed that they were underperforming. He would go out and, and to the media too, we would ask, you know, how is 
so-and-so doing? And he would be honest about if their expectations met the, or their performance met their expectations or not. So the players were able to see, okay, this is a guy that's going to be honest with me to my face. And also he's going to call me out or he's going to hype me up or he's going to be fair to the media when I'm performing well. And it was easy for guys to have conversations with him because he treated them just with the basic, basic respect of telling him how it is. That's who Ali Marmol is as a person. He's not one that's going to beat around the bush with you. He's going to be direct. He's going to answer your questions. He's going to let you know what he thinks. And I think in a clubhouse that already has so much leadership internally, that was the best approach for him to take. I know this is supposed to be a 2023 season preview, not a 2022 year in review, but but just one backward-looking question. How did Albert Pujols do that? <laughs> I still ask myself that question, and I think that's the perfect way to phrase it. Sometimes, I mean, we still talk about him, obviously. He's pretty much an everyday topic, even though he's retired. But it is certainly surreal when you think about the 2022 season. Because I remember when he, his first day that he showed up, and it was like, okay, you know, in, in a theory... It's, it's a good idea because he's still so loved here in St. Louis. It's a great story. But the Cardinals were so adamant that they did not bring him back because it was a great story. The front office brought him back because they thought it could be helpful. And little did they know he was their best player in the second half. And they had two MVP candidates and he was still <laughs> their best player. Yeah. It was a great story. I, I think Cardinals fans will, I certainly will remember that season for a very long time. Hopefully it helped alleviate the pain of an early playoff exit, but. Yeah, what a what a what a way to go out. If we all went out like Albert, I think we'd all be okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to go out with our our traditional last question for these segments, which I guess may be sort of simple for the Cardinals, but we always ask just how do you define success for this team this season? What would constitute a successful season? And it's the Cardinals. I guess you always sort of just expect to make the playoffs and, and win the division again, hopefully. But is there any more granular way that we could define a successful season for them when it comes to either progress on the farm system or progress for certain players? Other than just, I guess, the, the obvious of, uh, yeah, we should try to win the division again and everyone wants to win the World Series. Nope, you nailed it. The, the bare minimum <laughs> for the Cardinals yeah. is winning the division, right? I think at this point, for them to be successful in 2023, they have to win in the playoffs because while they have done a fantastic job of being a playoff caliber team nearly every season, they have not won consistently in the postseason since 2019 when they were swept by the Nationals and the NLCS. In fact, they've had three straight first round exits in the playoffs. So you can make the argument, okay, yeah, they make the playoffs every year, but what do they do with it? So this year, I think the measuring of success is can they win in the playoffs? Not can they get there, although that is the first step. It's do they have what it takes to win games, to win series in the playoffs because we haven't seen it in a little bit. Yep, it's been a, a long drought. Poor, long-suffering Cardinals Poor, fans. Poor, long-suffering St. Louis fans. <laughs> I know every time I say something like that, I'm sure Pirates fans or Reds fans are like throwing their computers or phones at the wall. I get it. I, I yeah. really do. You got to well. placate your base. We get it. <laughs> exactly. It's all relative. All right. Well, you can read about the Cardinals all season at The Athletic. Katie will be covering them as usual. And you can also find her on Twitter at Wu, And you can hear her doing some previewing and other podcasting as well on the athletic baseball show so thanks very much katie for making some time thanks ben thanks meg i appreciate it all right we'll take one more quick break and we'll be right back with nick picoro who covers the diamondbacks for the arizona republic and az central sports he'll also be joined by some birds in the background you'll hear what i mean be right back I see you 
All right, we are back, and we are joined now by Nick Picoro, who covers the Arizona Diamondbacks for the Arizona Republic and AZ Central Sports, and not by coincidence, is here to discuss the Arizona Diamondbacks with us. Hello, Nick. Welcome back. Hi, Ben. Hi, Meg. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming back. So the Diamondbacks were one of three teams last season that improved by more than 20 wins. The other two were the Mets and the Orioles, and the Diamondbacks uh, probably got the least attention of that trio, and they did improve by the fewest wins of that trio and also ended up with the fewest wins of that trio, but still, it's a sizable (laughs) improvement, and so I'll start this the way that we started our Orioles segment last week, which is basically by asking you to make the case for and against regression coming, just because... (laughs) Any team that improves by that many wins, uh, historically speaking, you know, often they tend to take a step back, but that's not the case for every team. And some teams have a a better chance than others to maintain that gain or even add to it. So give us the the pro and con for the Diamondbacks uh, being as good or, or better than they were last year and not losing any ground. Oh, man, you're starting me off with a question where I have to be negative. <laughs> well, both well, negative yeah. and positive. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's let's start with a the negative then just to get out of the way. Just that, okay. I mean, I guess like if you kind of looked at where they were in early August last year, a lot really wasn't going right. And that includes like looking down in, in the minor leagues and seeing some of their pitchers that had had such great years the year before not pitching that well in in triple a and you kind of wonder if you know some of the stuff that happened late in the year you know i guess dre jameson and ryan nelson are the guys that come to mind coming up and throwing so well in the big leagues if maybe we haven't kind of fooled ourselves in a little bit into thinking like you know that that the stuff that happened in reno like entirely does not count right i mean and, and it to some degree probably shouldn't but anyway i guess like that's that's one negative that i would i would throw out again and and then again like there's guys that like i don't know christian walker i guess had a season that people probably didn't anticipate and and there's some others that you can kind of say you know jake mccarthy is he really as good as as he was in the second half last year you know josh rojas had a nice season is there really more in the tank there or is that kind of the the best they'll get from him i i guess it's it's just that there are some guys Merrill Kelly is another one right like is Merrill mm-hmm. Kelly like a, a legit number two starter there's just some guys where you can kind of say like was that really the the best year that that they'll ever have is or is there or is there you know more ceiling in there the other the other side of it though I mean I, I think they they added a, a lot of arms a lot of power arms to their bullpen in the offseason you know, they're going to be hoping that a lot of these young players continue to get better. You're going to be getting a full season of Corbin Carroll, you know, full season of, of Gabriel Moreno. You know, if Jake McCarthy is anything close to what he was in the second half last year, that's a really interesting player. Um, you're going to be hoping that Alec Thomas is able to make adjustments that he struggled to make last year. You're going to be hoping that Josh Rojas can be a little bit better defensively that Lourdes Gurriel was as bothered by the handmade injury that sapped his power apparently in Toronto as as the Dimex believe. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, this starting rotation with with Zach Gallon at the top and, and Merrill Kelly's breakout last year and all of these young arms coming, including Brandon Fodd, who didn't reach the big leagues, you know, are are ready to to, uh, to lead the way. Yeah, I mean I I, I think there's enough there to, to give people some reasonable hope. But like I said, I, I, I do kind of feel like it just felt a lot different 
at the beginning of August than it did at like the beginning of October to where like, I don't know, you wondered with this ownership group and their history as, as you know, at, at that point in August, like you're kind of wondering like, gosh, are, are they, would, would they make a change? Like, is it, is it, is it that bad? Do you think in their eyes? Cause you know, they were on pace for an, I don't know what they were on pace for, but it, it wasn't the same, the same pace that they wound up at with 74 wins. So yeah. it, it felt, it felt a lot different. They have so many young guys, many of whom you just mentioned who we could start with, but maybe let's stick with the pitching for a second. You talked about and mentioned Gallon's breakout and Kelly looking the way that he did, but let's talk about some of the younger arms there. So Dre Jameson is exciting. Fott is exciting. What are your expectations in terms of what those guys are going to be able to do and then when they might be on the big league roster on a permanent basis? Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of them for sure is 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 very likely to be on the on the roster on opening day and in the rotation if they decide to you know pull the trigger on another of them in the bullpen, which I guess I wouldn't be shocked if they do early in the year because it's easier to kind of get guys like multi inning outings early on. I don't think that they would like you know if Dre Jameson doesn't make the rotation, boom, he's in the bullpen, he's in the bullpen all year because I think they they just value the starting depth too much but yeah i i think i think that look i i think madison bumgarner is probably another guy that's on your list to talk about um will will be very interesting to watch uh, just how many starts they're willing to give him will be very interesting you know and zach davies is, is obviously a nice veteran pitcher who kind of has a uh, element of dependability but if he were to struggle and these other guys are pitching great i wouldn't be surprised if if they you know pulled the trigger on that too at some point in the year. Um, Obviously, I think his leash would be a lot longer than Bumgarner's at this point. And then as far as like, you know, what to expect, I mean, Fott was really, really good last year at a couple of levels that it's hard to be really, really good at. Yeah. You know, the the knock, I guess, is that he doesn't have that one wipeout secondary, but like the sum of the parts has been pretty awesome. The fastball is is a pretty dominant pitch. I, I mean, I was I was watching on the monitors in the clubhouse the other day. They had one of his live sessions on a TV monitor in the clubhouse. I don't know why, and that's Another thing that has changed for all these years of covering baseball, I would never have thought a, a live session going on outside would be piped into the clubhouse inside. <laughs> anyway, he throws this this pitch that has crazy run and tailing action, and it, it looked like a two seamer. And one of the one of his teammates that was sitting in there was like, "Oh yeah, that's his changeup. It looked like a ninety mile an hour changeup." I mean, I didn't have the velocity, but it looked really firm and like a really good pitch. So yeah. I think maybe his weapons are a little bit better than we give him credit for. Jamison obviously has some really loud stuff, and his two-seamer last year was a better pitch than I expected it to be when, when he was in the big leagues um, from what we saw. And Nelson has a fastball. I just saw a tweet from Eno the other day. He has a fastball that's that's pretty elite, and you know he kind of leaned on it really heavily in big spots last year. Um, these are guys with pretty good stuff, man. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a pretty interesting young group of pitchers. First of all, I'm really enjoying these soothing nature sounds. I feel like <laughs> I'm in an aviary. This is great. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's just what it's like not to live in an apartment, I guess. Uh, just... At least you can't hear the freeway, which isn't that far away. That's <laughs> <laughs> a preferable sound. <laughs> so you brought up Bumgarner. I, I guess we might as well go there while we're there. So what was his issue down the stretch last year, if you can limit it to just one thing? And what if things don't go better? this year what are the potential scenarios i don't exactly know what 
what the issue is, frankly. I mean, it just doesn't seem like his stuff fools guys the way that it used to. I mean, I didn't ever cover him when he was, like, great, you know? So my, my memory of him is, is watching him in the, in the playoffs and kind of watching him throw these fastballs wherever he wanted, it seemed like, and throw them by guys. And it just doesn't seem to work that way anymore. I don't know if his, if his pitches are, are missing some rise qualities that they had before, but he just doesn't have it or didn't in the second half last year. And even when he was like, you know, pitching effectively in the first half, it was, it was never quite like a dominant version of Madison Bumgarner. It just hasn't been really. Other than maybe one stretch uh, in 2021, it just hasn't been that guy. I don't, I don't know like how long they will be willing to wait, but I have to imagine it won't be super long. I think that they'll give him some time because like I was saying earlier, just the, the value of having starting pitching depth. I don't, don't think that they would pull the plug on him in spring training. If it doesn't look good, I, I think he would get several starts. Just, just, I, I think they would want to be able to get through that early portion of a, of a baseball season when pitcher injuries tend to happen just right. I mean, just to kind of get through and know that like, okay, Brandon fought has taken the ball five times and, and doesn't look like it's going to break right now. And, and all the other right. guys as well. But look, I mean, if, if it, if it looks like it looked in August and September, I would be surprised if he got more than, you know, three to six starts. I, I, I think like, I, I think this is a team that, that these guys want to contend. They want to continue to improve. And if he's not keeping them in games, they're not going to wait around too long. Well, we've bummed D-backs fans out with Bumgarner, so maybe we can lift them by talking about Zach Gallen because it's kind of hard to find a way that Zach Gallen didn't take a step forward in 2022 compared to 2021. He threw more innings. You know, he still struck a bunch of guys out. He gave up fewer home runs. He walked fewer guys. I know that he made some changes to his pitch mix, but what really drove the breakout for you and what do you expect from him this year? I mean, he was just like the version of himself that we had seen every other year prior to 2021 or every other outing prior to 2021, pretty much, except he sort of, I felt like in the past, there would be times when he'd get to two strikes and kind of get a little too cute, you know, and maybe not attack guys quite as aggressively and, and end up getting deeper into counts and end up walking guys. And he would always or most often pitch his way out of it, but it just kind of felt like he just stayed on the attack at all times last year and man i mean he's he really is fun to watch it's just yeah it's cool <laughs> it's yeah it's every pitch he wants wherever he wants it and i did a fun story with him last year where i was just talking about how he kind of preps in terms of his you know how he's going to game plan guys and just kind of had him walk me through how he was like thinking about attacking Kyle Schorber in this one sequence and it was just it's so much fun i mean he's such a smart pitcher and and uh, and just is always, always thinking and always like he can just you know, one of those guys with the re recall to, to think back to and at bat from months or years ago. And he's he's just the total package. He really is. He's he's talented. He's competitive and he's intelligent. So he's he's kind of got it all. 
You alluded to the bullpen earlier, and that's got to be one of the biggest reasons for optimism if you're looking at ways that the Diamondbacks can avoid regression. They could get positive regression in the bullpen (laughs) because it can't be worse, right? They were the worst bullpen in baseball. I think the only bullpen that had sub-replacement level war, according to fan graphs, and they did some things to rebuild it this offseason. So they brought in Andrew Chafin, brought him back on a, a deal that I was surprised he didn't get a bigger deal than he did. Miguel Castro, Scott McGuff, add them to surprise all-star Joe Mantiply. <laughs> now you got a stew going, I guess. Is this uh, going to be a better bullpen? I guess that is a very low bar, but how much better can it be? Yeah, it's got to be better, right? Um, <laughs> they're hoping that Melanson can be better as well. Um, but mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's just that the it, it feels like one of those like floor is higher type of situations where like even like they're hoping that they can get Miguel Castro to put it together right they're they're hoping that that you know Chafin can be the guy he has been the last couple of years but even if those guys are sort of closer to like what they've been in their careers like that's still way better than some of the guys that they were running out there the last couple of years so they think that they've added a lot more a lot more power a lot more swing and miss a lot more velocity and yeah, I mean, it just it does feel like there's just more guys coming too. I mean, they've they've got a couple of guys that are interested. I mean, they they traded for Carlos Vargas from from Cleveland, who's been a you know power armed prospect of note for a long time. It seems like they have him on their forty, and and he could be an option quickly. They added Justin Martinez to their forty in the offseason. He's another guy who has kind of been a Diamondbacks prospect that that has felt really far away for for many years now, but then all of a sudden it kind of came together for him in the second half of last year and he finished in the fall league. And yeah, I mean, both of those guys throw 95 plus Vargas has a good slider. Martinez has a good, like uh, it's like a split change that that's pretty nasty. So they've, they've got some guys with stuff all of a sudden it seems like. So I guess if they, if they stink, they'll, they'll be a little bit more fun to watch stink, but I I think they've (laughs) got to be better. This feels like the first year in a while where there, there are certainly some positional battles to sort through in camp, but where a lot of the big league roster feels pretty set going into camp. Obviously, in the outfield, you're going to have Carroll and, you know, you hopefully have Thomas, like you said, sort of make some adjustments. But among the 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 guys on the edges of this roster, you know, your Kyle Lewis's and, you know, guys like Perdomo who have had bench roles but are, are kind of dealing with some competition. Like where where are the places where D-backs fans should look and say, hey, let's see how they sort that position out? Yeah, there's really not an awful lot up for grabs. And I even think Perdomo, I, I wondered if he had a if there was questions about his roster spot, but I, I think it's pretty safe that they're that that they're gonna need a guy who's more of a true backup shortstop on this roster. You know, Cattell isn't really that guy anymore. Yeah. Josh Rojas, they don't want to do that anymore. So I think he is gonna be on the team. The only really position player spot is is that last spot, and it seems like it would come down to Kyle Lewis, Paven Smith, Emmanuel Rivera. And it's one of those spots. I I don't know this for sure, but I I kind of feel like it's a spot that could that could just kind of be rotating based on upcoming matchups. You know, like if they gotcha. think there's a stretch of right-handed pitchers, maybe you have Paven Smith on the roster. If you're going to be facing a bunch of lefties, maybe it's it's Kyle Lewis, or maybe one of them. You know, clearly deserves being on, or or I don't know. We'll we'll see about Kyle Lewis's health. They're kind of slow playing him this spring, which. I guess would come as no surprise to anybody that's followed his career. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's really it, the fifth spot in the rotation, and then some some 
you know how the bullpen exactly shakes out there's there's not an awful lot of intrigue in this in this camp from a roster spot perspective Let's talk about the big move that was made this offseason, the Varsho Moreno trade, which was just a really interesting and fun and, and satisfying trade. And I guess you could say sort of a predictable trade in that each team was trading from a strength and shoring up its trade partner's weakness. So talk about Varsho and what gave the Diamondbacks the confidence to deal him and just the overall outfield picture there and, and the surplus that they had at that position. And then just it seems like they were thrilled to get Moreno and for good reason. So how did that deal come together as far as you understand it? Yeah, what a fascinating trade. What a fun trade. And I think honestly, kind of a bold trade by the Diamondbacks. Like I feel like I feel like you can make an argument that that trade is not a clear 2023 victory for the Diamondbacks, right? I mean, you're taking mm-hmm. off the most proven outfielder of that bunch from the roster, the, you know, 27 home runs, gold glove defense, all that, which means you're going to be giving it bats to less proven guys like McCarthy and Thomas. You are adding Marino and Guriel, but I mean, there there is, you know, Guriel's not the defender of the other guys. So almost all of his value is going to be in his bat and his bat was a little shaky last year to some extent. And, you know, Marino is going to be taking at bats from, you know, Carson Kelly and then who, you know, Jose Herrera was the backup for most of last year, Cooper Hummel, guys like that. So there is, there is room for, for some, you know, for it to be an upgrade, but I, I just feel like it's, it's more in the back half you know, the later years of that deal where it seems like it's it's probably going to be a, a huge win for the Diamondbacks if Moreno turns out to be what they think. But like kudos to the Diamondbacks, kudos to Mike Hazen and, and, and his group for kind of making the right trade for the organization, even at a time when, you know, probably like I kind of alluded to this earlier, I think they need the, to keep winning. You know, I think they need to keep improving and, and being a competitive team. So I, I, I think it was a really fascinating move in that regard. And yeah, I, I think like, look, these guys have liked Alec Thomas for a really long time. I don't think that they're going to, that they're, you know, panicking over a few months of struggles. Um, I think that they like, you know, his athleticism, they like his makeup, they see him as someone who can make adjustments that, uh, what, I mean, like most young hitters have to make, right? I mean, him coming up and not dominating in his first 500 at bats is not that unheard of. So, you know, they're they're banking on him figuring it out. And they really like Jake McCarthy. And after seeing what we saw from him in the last couple of months of last season, you can't blame them. He's a really athletic player. He kind of plays a brand of baseball that I think that they just want, like, they just want to sort of be known for. You know, I, I think they just, they, they want to be super aggressive. And he has like a a contact-oriented approach. He he just likes to put pressure on the opposition. He's just fearless too on the bases. I I remember him trying to steal home against the Dodgers, and he and he made an out. It would have been like a walk-off steal of home on like a, a he tried to he tried to steal when the catcher threw it back to the pitcher. You know, one of those. Mm-hmm. And that like we were in L.A. the next week, and there was another play at the plate that was really close. It was a tag up for for him on on third on a sack fly, and and he didn't hesitate and barely beat it and. And he's like, he just doesn't, he, he didn't let, you know, making it out in a somewhat similar situation the, the week before bother him at all. He's just, he's just an aggressive and, and confident player. And the other thing about it, I guess, kind of getting a little bit more to what you were asking, I don't think that they could have gotten anything close to, you know, Moreno if they had moved either of the other two, just based on where those guys value is right now. McCarthy McCarthy, I mean, you look at like some of the the batted ball data, like 
you know, his baseball savant page has a lot of blue on it. So it's not, it's not like he went out and was just crushing balls all over the place. There's a little bit, there's a little bit more like nuance and a little bit more risk, I guess, to, to him. And then, you know, like with Thomas, I, I think that, I think that he had lost a little bit of value. I think people still thought highly of him, but I, I do think that there's some questions now about him that maybe weren't as obvious as before. And it was, you know, sort of him expanding the zone and, and, or, or maybe even like not being able to lay off some of those strikes that he, you know, that he can't really do much with. And instead of taking that approach of like, okay, if you can throw it there three times and get me out, tip your cap. He was swinging at him and kind of making the same sort of outs over and over and over again for a long time. You know, with Varsho, like, I, I think it's just kind of crazy that they got back in value such a highly rated prospect. Like, there was at no point in in Varsho's career had he been, like, valued, I don't think, any high or anywhere near as highly as he was at that point in time. And they really, you know... They they were willing to pull the trigger on it. I th- I think it's I think there's some bravery involved there. Now I do think Varsha's really good. I I do. Um, I think they're going to miss him. I think he was their best defensive outfielder. I don't know that people with the Dimex would agree with me on that, but I thought he was better than Thomas. I think he's really good, and uh, and I think he's probably going to hit a lot of home runs in Toronto with that with those fences pulled in. Let's talk about another outfielder, the presumably favorite for the NL Rookie of the Year award, Corbin Carroll. So his projections have him at roughly a three-win player. But if you were to extrapolate his small sample performance in the majors last year, it'd be more like a five to six-win player. Is it greedy to think that you can do that, that he could do that so soon? Or is that within the realm of possibility? And also, are we going to be hearing about an extension sometime soon? I don't know. I thought what, what stuck out to me about his play in the you know the last five weeks of last season was that I never really sensed that he got going, you know, that he got hot. It was just sort of, he was playing pretty well. And it just felt like, it felt to me like there's another gear in there somewhere. Now, I don't know. I mean, he was he was killing it at two really good, you know, two really hitter-friendly environments last year. And like I was saying about, you know, Thomas, like hitters, young hitters struggle all the time. But like, he just I don't know. He has a he has a thing about him where you just kind of feel like like it's going to come and it's going to come right away. I I don't I don't know. I don't know if that's fair, but it it does feel like that to me. It doesn't seem like anything is pending in terms of of a contract extension. I really don't know an awful lot more than than what I reported last week, which was that the Diamondbacks would like to extend him and that it doesn't feel like there's optimism at the moment for a deal. So that stuff can change quickly. I don't know. It's it's an interesting situation, right? Because it could be one of those times where like if if he does play the way that they think he can play, it might get really expensive really quickly like we saw mm-hmm. last year with Julio Rodriguez. So if they are going to get it done and and they really truly believe that that he's a guy to build around, they they might need to they might need to push to a level that they're a little uncomfortable with given the uncertainty because uh I mean, I don't know. Julio had what like two thirds of a season and turned into that kind of a price tag. So I don't I don't think uh, Corbin is in a, a huge rush to to do a deal. So they're going to have to kind of maybe convince him that that he ought to. I feel a little strange asking this just because Drew Jones is so far away from being someone who you know D backs fans can expect to see roaming around and chase. But he joins like 
a kind of sad uh, trend within the the org where it seems like all of these guys end up hurting their shoulders in some in some shape or other. It happened to Carol; he obviously recovered. Uh, Lawler hurt his. It just like where where are they with Drew Jones right now? Where is he in his recovery? And kind of how how do they look at twenty twenty three from a developmental perspective from him? Because he obviously didn't really get to play at all post draft because of how early the injury was. Yeah, that's super weird. Yeah. And that's what everybody, that's the only thing anybody can really say about about it. You know, it was obviously Corbin Carroll, Jordan Lawler, and Andrew Jones, all three in a, I don't I don't know, what was it, an 18-month span? Or yeah. 15, I think it was a 15-month span, something like that. It was crazy. They seem to think that, that Drew Jones is doing great. His surgery kind of tracked really closely with Lawler's. Like, I think that they had almost identical issues Corbin Carroll's was a little bit more serious because he had some capsule uh, right. damage, and I think Lawler's and Jones were just labrums, uh, just. Um, <laughs> so he he seems to be doing great. They think that he's like gonna be ready for the start of the season, and uh, I I think he would go to to low A. I don't think that they would handle him a whole lot differently than Lawler last year, right? I mean, they were pretty aggressive with him finishing in double A. Uh, I I think that if Drew Jones you know plays the way that they think he could that 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 same sort of timetable would be possible. I guess the biggest positional concern for the Diamondbacks this year would be on the left side of the infield, especially shortstops. So how's Nick Ahmed looking, and then how does the third base situation shake out? Is Evan Longoria even a part of the mix over there? Yeah, well, Ahmed had been fully healthy and looking like a full go uh, until recently when he had some issues with his left arm. So he had surgery last year on his right shoulder, and all of a sudden the other day he came up with some tightness in his left forearm, which is a little odd. But it doesn't sound like it's going to be a big deal. But I don't, I, I don't think that. I, I think that if he's healthy, he's going to get the the bulk of the playing time right away. I, I do think that that there's still a lot of belief in. I guess there's a lot to talk about with shortstop. There's still a lot of belief in Geraldo Perdomo, despite the season that he had. I don't think that he's completely lost the chance to like kind of lock down this position long term because he's such a good defender. Um, he has an approach. He actually has a lot of strength in there. I mean, he's not a small guy, and there's times when he puts charges in the ball into balls. He did it in the the in spring training opener the other day where he just crushed a ball to out to left field, hitting right handed, which I don't think he hit a home run right-handed last year so that was that was nice to see from him Lawler obviously is a guy that could play his way into the mix at some point but he still has some questions to answer from a defensive standpoint and you know obviously he hasn't really like dominated double a the the upper levels of the minor leagues yet but that wouldn't shock me if he were an option at some point later in the year and then I I guess while we're on it I mean it reminds me of the fact that in the offseason, they did go and try to sign Xander Bogarts and Dansby Swanson. They fell apparently well short on both, but the fact that they were interested is sort of interesting, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think that that speaks to kind of what you were saying about third base in that they just had trouble like nailing down that position. And, you know, I, I was told the other day that basically they've tried to trade for every high level third base prospect alive the last couple of years and, and haven't been able to get a deal done and they understand why i mean they're they're valuable pieces they're hard to find um and i think that they sort of looked at it like okay well if we have xander bogarts and jordan lawler on the left side of our infield if lawler's playing third like okay so be it like we're, we're fine with that it was just it was an opportunity that they saw to 
potentially land an impact player and and they went for it. It doesn't speak necessarily to like they don't think Lawler can play shortstop long term. I I think they do. Or it doesn't speak necessarily to like they don't think Perdomo can bounce back. I I think there are people that that think he can. But yeah, so third base for this year, I think Rojas is going to get most of the starts. I think he's going to play predominantly against right-handed pitching. Longoria will play against lefties. And I I think everybody seems fine with that. You know, Longoria signed here with with that understanding, I think. Like he he seems ready to sort of be at that leadership, you know, veteran leader portion of his career. And uh and Rojas Man, if Rojas could could be a more dependable defender at third, man, it, we would probably be looking like if, if he hadn't kind of fallen apart defensively in the second half last year, we would probably be viewing him a whole lot differently right now. I wonder, given some of the the moves that they have tried to make in the last little bit and the looming you know potential contract extension with Carroll, you know they have they have those sort of forces pushing and pulling. I know that they will start to have money come off the books as like. You know, Bumgarner's deal expires, etc. You know, if this team is in a reasonable competitive position come the middle of the season, do you see them being willing to take on sort of veteran salary as a way of supplementing the roster if they think they can make a push for a wild card spot? Yeah, I do, and I, I I think Kendrick has kind of shown over the years that when there's a chance, he'll he'll spend a little bit more than than maybe he would would otherwise. When things start to go bad, is when he starts to tighten things up. And look, I mean, I think like even you look at the Bumgarner contract, they had a pretty good second half in 2019, and and thought that they might be able to be more competitive than people thought, and and they you know kind of surprisingly spent on him. They did the same thing all those years ago on Granky when no one would have expected it. So yeah, I I think that I think that they would do that and I think that if they're, you know, an 85 win team or whatever, if if they look like a like they're continuing to move in the right direction, I I definitely think that they would spend some more money next winter as well. I know Ken Kendrick and Derek Hall spoke about the ballpark situation last week. What did they say? Where do things stand in that area? They said that there's still some interested parties in in building them a new ballpark in Maricopa County. I don't know who that is or where that would be. Uh, it kind of just feels to me like the most likely outcome would be renovating and, and refurbishing Chase Field and, and kicking in this um, this like tax district entertainment. What's it called? Uh, I forget what it's called. Tourism. I don't know what it is. Some sort of district that they can they can kick in this tax that would that would only be for people at the ballpark. So like it would just be an extra surcharge on a on a ticket or on a beer or on a hot dog or whatever and they'd be able to raise money to go directly to the ballpark and also to like do things in the surrounding area to kind of I, I think they've talked about like you know the multi-use thing that other places are are doing where maybe they build a a hotel somewhere around there or they you know add restaurants and office space and all that that kind of feels like the most likely outcome to me but I, I don't know, maybe somebody's out there that wants to spend a billion dollars on a new stadium that I, I can't uh, foresee happening. And I, I, that's, that's, uh, that's hard to see in this market, in this day and age, but who knows, crazier things have happened. So they have all these really exciting young guys, and they have more exciting young guys coming up, and they also play baseball in the NL West. So where do where do the Diamondbacks see themselves positioned relative to the rest of their division? Because like Ben said, like they improved a lot last season. And like I just said, they got all these, they got all these guys. 
But they also have to deal with the Padres who keep spending money and the Dodgers who will spend money again at some point and the Giants who will try to be good for a while and they get they get to get a pass on the Rockies. So I guess they have that going for them. But, <laughs> you know, where where do they see themselves positioned relative to the rest of their division? I think that they see themselves as being happy that there is an extra wild card <laughs> and being happy that they don't have to play as many games in the division anymore as they sure. used to. But I also think like you kind of look at, at the Moreno trade and it, it kind of it kind of seems to me like a little bit of a of a reflection of that, right? Like, okay, the only way that we're gonna take these guys down is by really like getting this core together, bringing them up all at once, and kind of, you know, taking our best shot, right? So I mean if you've got if you've got a, a future lineup where where Corbin Carroll, Drew Jones Jordan Lawler and Gabriel Moreno are in it, that's a pretty good start, yeah. it seems, right? I mean, we don't know what any of these guys are at the moment, but people seem to think they're going to be pretty good. So I, I think that's kind of the way that they're the way they're hoping to, to do it. I don't know that like they're ever going to spend as much. I mean, they're almost certainly never going to spend as much as the Dodgers and the Padres, but if they do end up figuring some things out with the ballpark and opening up some new revenue streams, I suppose that that makes more things possible. I do think there's a little bit of a of a clock ticking in in respect to Zach Gallon, just because there's now three years of of you know control remaining with him. I have a hard time seeing Gallon taking any kind of a of a deal before hitting the open market, and then I have a hard time seeing the Diamondbacks really being able to compete financially with with the other teams when it comes to you know if if Gallon is in fact one of the best pitchers on the on the market when he gets there. I don't know. It it's uh it's an interesting thing to think about just because like you know if if they aren't where they need to be say next deadline, you probably have to start thinking about what you're going to do there. I guess the ideal, you know, outcome would be that all of these guys start to emerge, right? Dre Jameson and Nelson and Fott and Blake Walston and and that they have uh, you know a a ton of options and that they can sort of withstand that sort of you know absence whether it's taking gallon all the way to the buzzer or whether it's it's uh moving in before that uh, and still having enough guys to to field a competitive team so that leads right into our last question which is just what would constitute a successful season for the diamondbacks in 2023 is this a win now got to make the playoffs or it's a failure type season or is it a that would be nice but it's also about young guys making progress and more talent coming up from the farm etc so how do you gauge whether things have gone right or wrong for the diamondbacks this year yeah i, I mean i've asked I've asked Kendrick that question and Hazen that question. Kendrick basically said he expects them to be competitive. Hazen gave a little bit more of a of a detailed answer in terms of saying getting to the deadline and adding, you know, like just just being in position to be making those kinds of moves for the first time in a long time. I think I think both of those are are kind of aligned, right? And that 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 seems reasonable to me. I, I think that if they fall short, they fall short. But like if the right if enough of the young players take steps forward and kind of keep them in the hunt and, and give you reason to think that the future is bright, I think that would be a pretty good year for the Diamondbacks. 
All right. Well, you can follow and see whether it turns out to be a good year or not at the Arizona Republic at AZ Central Sports, azcentral.com. Nick will be covering the team as he always does, and you can find him on Twitter too at his name, Nick Picoro. Thanks as always, Nick. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. And thanks to the flock for joining us as well. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's end with the Pass Blast, which comes from 1974 and from David Lewis, an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. And he writes, 1974 is statistical analysis, the future of baseball. This is a fun one. In July 1974, a Los Angeles Times sports writer suggested that a computer could make better strategic baseball decisions than Dodgers manager Walter Alston. Alston was blamed for a Dodgers loss in which he did not call for a sacrifice bunt with a runner on first and no outs while down one run. California State Northridge professor Richard E. Truman, that's T-R-U-E-M-A-N, took issue with this idea as he explained in a letter to the editor published on July 20th. And usually we only read a short excerpt from the source of these stories, but I got to just give credit to Richard E. Truman here, just (laughs) a a man ahead of his time. And I just I got to read his note to the L.A. Times here. Headline, should manager Alston consult a computer? Your editorial from July 5th, kill the computer makes the completely unwarranted assumption that a computer operating in place of Dodger manager Walt Alston would have ordered a sacrifice bunt by Ron Say with a runner on first and no outs late in a tie game. As a matter of fact, analyses of baseball strategy have shown conclusively, except to baseball managers, that the attempted sacrifice in that situation is a poor strategy. From an analysis of over 300 Major League games a decade ago, George Lindsay published an article entitled An Investigation of Strategies in Baseball in the journal Operations Research, July to August 1963. He found that the chances of scoring at least one run were less with a runner on second and one out than with a runner on first and no outs. Thus, the sacrifice would be a loser, even if always successful, which is certainly not the case. Subsequent computer-oriented analyses by Earnshaw Cook, Percentage Baseball and the Computer, Waverly Press, 1971, and by myself have confirmed Lindsay's results. The real probabilities would permit no other decision than to junk the sacrifice except when the pitcher is at bat, since he is usually an automatic out anyway. The concept of a computer-managed team is nonsensical because the decision to use a given strategy at some time during a particular game must necessarily be based on the manager's judgment of the abilities of the players involved, condition of the grounds, the element of surprise, etc. The value of computer analyses lies in the capability to furnish a rational basis for such decisions by providing the manager with specific numerical data on the minimum probability of success required to gainfully employ a particular strategy in a given situation. The first Major League Baseball club to utilize computer analyses to help their manager should conservatively win 5-10 to additional games over a season. And that could well mean a pennant for any of several ball clubs. Baseball is at least 10 years behind the times in the use of computers to perform meaningful statistical analyses. Austin's brilliant strategy in the aforementioned game should have been a routine decision. Being a perpetual optimist, I look forward to the day when managers will really play percentage baseball because their current version of it is really way off base. 
Richard E. Truman, Professor of Management Science at California State University, Northridge. This is 1974 again, and I appreciate that. I appreciate his tone of optimism and thinking that the day will come when people will be running the numbers the way that he was, and also that he did not exactly disparage the managers and say they don't know what they're doing. In fact, he said that it would be nonsensical to have a computer make these decisions unilaterally and that you want to have the human input to take advantage of these computers that the computer could not factor in. So I think he had a a healthy way of looking at this. Yeah. Yeah. Ahead of his time. And in fact, he was ahead of even this time because I got curious about Richard E. Truman, as did David, and he went looking for earlier citations from him. And in fact, there's an article here that mentions him in 1959, and he was already on this. Now, I had heard of George Lindsay and Earnshaw Cook, the analyst that he cited in that 1974 piece. But 1959, I mean, that is going way back here. So 1959, November 23rd, headline, Computer Used to Decide on Baseball Moves, Pasadena, California, an electronic computer has been used to decide whether a sacrifice, stolen base, or intentional walk is the best baseball strategy under given conditions. Richard E. Truman of the University of California at Los Angeles told the Operations Research Society of America meeting here that an international business machine's 709 computer had been instructed how to play individual innings, science service reports. Batting statistics of a representative major league lineup form the starting point. From these, tables are made showing the desired probability of selecting each of 13 possible plays. Individual innings are then played by the computer using random numbers to select the plays. Some 5,000 innings are played for each possible combination of initial conditions, Truman reported. The initial conditions can be varied according to the leadoff batter in the inning, location of base runners, and number of outs. For each initial condition... Statistics are kept on the probability of scoring a given number of runs, the average number of runs scored, and the probability of a double play occurring. With this information, such strategies as the sacrifice stolen base and intentional walk can be quantitatively analyzed. Casey Stengel, take note. Hmm. 1959. Yeah, how about that? Richard Truman, this guy, I mean, decades ahead of his time. Yeah. So he later, I I saw, became the author of a a couple of books, I think one in 74 and one in 81, An Introduction to Quantitative Methods for Decision-Making and Quantitative Methods for Decision-Making in Business. (laughs) Doesn't necessarily sound like a page-turner, but uh, based on his baseball analysis, uh, I bet he had some great quantitative methods for decision-making in those tomes. And I'd love to know more about him. I found that he was a professor emeritus of systems and operations management when he was at the California State University, Northridge, and he got degrees from Northwestern and Stanford and USC, and he was a registered industrial engineer in the state of California. So I believe he is no longer with us, but I have not yet been able to ascertain when he ceased to be with us, I was uh, trying to track down a relative or something because I was wondering if he lived long enough to see the future he forecasted yeah. come to fruition when managers were using percentage baseball and teams were factoring these things in the way that he was, gosh, in 1959. I, I hope he lived to see that day come because yeah. uh, he predicted that it would long before it did. 
Yeah, it would have been pretty satisfying, I would imagine. Yeah, I would think so. And uh, perhaps he didn't live long enough to see everyone take it too far and sabermetrics ruin <laughs> baseball, as we know that it has. Uh, no, not necessarily. But I wonder whether he would have foreseen just all the different directions that it has gone in. Anyway, my hat's off to you, Richard E. Truman, a true visionary. Well, I did some additional research with an assist from listener and Patreon supporter Sir Parsifal, and I believe that we've determined that Richard E. Truman passed away in 2015, so I didn't miss him by that much. And obviously he lived well into the sabermetrics era of baseball, so I have reached out to a couple of his sons, I think. If I hear anything back about whether Richard conducted any further baseball research and what he thought of the sabermetrics movement, I will report that on a future podcast feel like he's a kindred spirit connected to me through the newsprint. I'd like to know more about this pioneer. Also, a follow-up on our discussion on episode 1972 about the Mets' proprietary infield drill that they cleared reporters off the field to conduct. Well, Tim Britton of The Athletic did some digging, and he confirmed that it was indeed pickoff plays that they were testing, as we speculated. Buck Showalter has been working with Reed Brignac, who's been managing in the Mets' system. It seems like having minor league managers or coaches who've been exposed to the these rules in the minors in camp is kind of a competitive advantage. I will link to Tim's article and also to Noah Woodward's breakdown on Substack of what the Mets have been doing, burning a second pickoff attempt, waiting until there's one second left on the clock to throw over. Just a little gamesmanship going on. Those will be the bottom two links on the show page. And of course, there is also a link on the show page that you can click in order to support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some month or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, get themselves access to some perks, and help us stay ad-free. Ryan Gabriel, Anne Gwyn Robson, Richard Durkee, Cam Kane, and Patrick Vance. Thanks to all of you. Our Patreon supporters get access to lots of wonderful perks, including bonus episodes every month. We just released one of them this past weekend. We did an AMA episode. It sparked a lot of discussion in the Discord group for Patreon supporters, which is another nice perk. Closing in on 1,000 members talking about baseball all day and all night. You can also get access to playoff live streams and discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships and computer games and much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. You can message us via the Patreon site if you are a Patreon supporter. If you're not, then you must resort to email. You can reach us at podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. And you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins, who is still providing his editing and production assistance. We'll be passing the halfway point of the previews next time. We'll be doing the Dodgers and Cubs. But before that, we'll do a non-preview pod. So we'll be back with that one midweek. Talk to you then. Travel